Hey, it's Erica. I just wanted to let you know that you can now listen to Global News What Happened To ad-free on Amazon Music, included with Prime. When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply. Another record increase in daily COVID-19 cases. Eight more people lost their battle with the virus as the provincial total grinds towards 4,000. In hopes of stopping the spread of COVID-19, Ontario is imposing the highest level of restrictions on the hotspots. Pandemic's end is still far from sight. In 2020, a global health emergency continues to rock us. We have therefore made the assessment that COVID-19 can be characterized as a pandemic. Over a million people are dead. Millions more infected as a new coronavirus put a stranglehold on the world. But what if I told you that 17 years ago, a similar virus gripped parts of the world as well? And there was one city in North America that was among the hardest hit. I'm Erica Vela, a reporter for Global News. And over the years, I've often wondered what became of that virus. How did it impact people working on the front lines? What lessons did we learn? And did it help us prepare for our current battle with COVID-19? This is Whatever Happened to SARS. Before we get into SARS, I think it's important to talk about COVID-19. I'll be honest with you. When I started researching this episode over a year ago, I had no idea we were on the cusp of a global pandemic. At the time, SARS was one of those stories that people had forgotten about, and I thought it would be interesting to look back on what had happened. And then the new coronavirus hit. And I really wanted to explore how the two outbreaks compared to one another. I think it's important to know, after I've spoken to many, many medical professionals about SARS and COVID-19, that there are several major differences between these two viruses. The first is the rate at which COVID-19 spreads. And the other revolves around identifying people who are symptomatic versus people who are asymptomatic. It's something we'll get into in a little more detail a little later on. Back in 2003, nobody could have anticipated a respiratory illness called severe acute respiratory syndrome, and the virus associated with it would cause an epidemic that would change our approach to healthcare. The first known case of this atypical pneumonia was documented in China in November 2002. That is according to the World Health Organization. Just like COVID-19, the WHO played a huge role in monitoring SARS. It gathered information from all parts of the world, tracked the virus's spread, and developed procedures that would help limit the number of illnesses. Nikki Shindu is a senior advisor for the World Health Organization's Health Emergencies Program. She says that by February 2003, 
Three months after the original case, the WHO had tracked over 300 probable cases of this mystery respiratory illness in the Guangdong region. So us came from China, uh, Guangdong province, we believe, and at least the uh, first recognized human case was retrospectively identified in Guangdong province in China back in November uh, 2002. But um, it surfaced really from the, um, the end of January towards the beginning of February. It, it really had been amplified and the reason for amplification was, was um, hospitalization of severe patients and uh, um, infected healthcare workers and other uh, patient in, in hospitals. By mid-February, at least five people had died because of this mystery virus. But things were about to get complicated. In late February 2003, a 65-year-old doctor from the Guangdong region traveled to Hong Kong and stayed at the Metropole Hotel. Before he left, he treated patients with this mysterious pneumonia-like virus. When he arrived in Hong Kong, he started showing symptoms. So the doctor stayed in the fancy hotel. Um, he had a, a family event, um, if I um, recall correctly, it was a wedding of um, his um, relatives. And then he stayed in this uh, Hotel A, and this hotel was a very fancy hotel in the middle of Hong Kong. And um, of course, um, in Hong Kong is very international cities. And at the same floor, there are many people who were coming from the different parts of the world and went back to um, their um, respective originating countries. So um, that's how it's got um, exported. And uh, we call it the super spreading event. That's all it took. As Shindu said, just one super spreading event. That one doctor infected at least 12 people. And from there, the mystery virus began showing up in other countries. First, in Vietnam. Chinese-American businessman who traveled from Hong Kong to uh, Vietnam, Hanoi, was in Hanoi, got really sick and hospitalized in Hanoi French Hospital, uh, which is um, a very high-end, uh, fancy hospital with, with uh, a modern equipment. So uh, from this source patient, there were several um, nurses and doctors got infected and that Cholesterol was the first one we, we got, and that was the um, end of February. More or less um, the same time, uh, or slightly lagged in early March, uh, we received information from Hong Kong uh, Special Administrative Region China about the hospital cluster. And soon after that, we got um, reports from Singapore. Sui Chuquan and her husband, who had also stayed at the Metropole Hotel in Hong Kong in February, had traveled back to their home in Toronto. And just like that, the virus would make its way across the world into North America. 
A few days after she arrived back in Canada, Sui Chuquan began to show symptoms similar to pneumonia, a high fever, a dry cough, aches and pains. Her family took care of her at home, but two weeks later, she passed away. Then her son, Chi Kwai Tse, began feeling sick. In early March, he was brought to Scarborough Grace Hospital by ambulance. He was struggling to breathe despite the efforts of the paramedics and the doctors. He died days later. They were the first to die in Canada of a virus that would soon spread. Sylvia Gordon is a registered nurse, and at the time, she was working at Scarborough Grace Hospital in Toronto. That's the hospital where Chi Kwaitse was treated but ultimately died. She'd been there for about 20 years. I worked in in a critical care unit, coronary, and we did like the codes in the hospital. Very high impact. There was an element of uh, being able to do so much more for patients. So it was really the helping element of it and the caring. We were saving lives every day. There's one day in early March 2003 that she remembers vividly. I was uh, doing a, a day shift, and a 12-hour day shift. Uh, we had trouble staffing, and I stayed on for an extra hour or so. And uh, just on my way out through the door, I heard this deep snoring, and I thought, wow, somebody's in trouble. I went in the room, and sure enough, the patient was having like a cardiac arrest. So I kind of put my bag down and call a code, and we begun uh, resuscitating him. The man they resuscitated had SARS, the virus which, at this point, she didn't even know existed, and one that she was now infected with. Before I go further, there's one thing that makes SARS unique. Dr. Allison McGeer is a clinical scientist with the Sinai Health System in Toronto and has worked on SARS and COVID-19, as well as other large-scale epidemics like Ebola in West Africa. She says with other infectious viruses, such as measles, a person is most contagious before they start showing symptoms. Let's say it's a viral infection, you get exposed to the virus, the virus starts to grow. If it's a respiratory infection, the virus will be growing in the cells on the surface of your nose and mouth and your throat. And you will start to, um, new viruses will start to be created. And as you talk or breathe or cough, they will spread around you to other people. And then as the viruses start growing, your immune system recognizes them as foreign, recognizes the fact that they're causing damage, and and kicks in to, to get rid of them. So for most infections, the time when there's the most virus about, when you're shedding the most virus into the air or onto the surfaces or around you or the hands and faces of people that you're close to, is before your immune system kicks in. Um, so before you start to get sick or just in the very first couple of days of getting sick. And with SARS, not so much. So when you first get sick, you're actually not very infectious to anybody. There's not very much transmission. And then the because your body does not control 
the multiplication of the virus very well, it gets bigger and bigger and you get sicker and sicker. And the time when you're shedding the most virus um, is actually the time when you're really sick, which in, in, in our world means the time at which you are admitted to the intensive care unit. So that difference is what made the outbreak of SARS distinctive in that it happened it was that that the risk was associated primarily with hospitals and it also was why there were so many healthcare workers who were ill so let's go back to early march 2003 at the scarborough grace hospital sylvia remembers there being rumors of patients with a bad virus but she thought they were contained in the icu and not in her unit but then she started feeling sick well, initially, I thought I was coming down with the flu. It was, you know, you're coughing and you're feeling lethargic, running a, a temperature and uh, just body pain, aches and pains all over. So it was like, gee, this is really a, a bad, a bad flu. But um, gradually, we um, realized it. Uh, about three days after, it wasn't going away, and we were treating. I was treating it aggressively, and as I've said, that was when I I called in sick to work, and I said, you know, I can't make it, and I was told that, oh gosh, you know, you're not the first one. We we've been getting a number of calls from from other colleagues that they're not able to make it to work, that you're ill, and then I. Uh, started figuring out, well, maybe we contracted something. So I started calling my colleagues, and then they described the same symptom. Sylvia wasn't getting better. She went to the ER, and her colleagues were working to diagnose this mystery illness. He ran some tests, and we did the the chest x-ray, and he came back, and he said, it looks like you have uh, SARS. That was the first time I heard the name. In a matter of weeks, the number of probable cases had grown to almost 1,400 worldwide. Patients like Sylvia were coming into hospitals weakened by this respiratory illness. And doctors, they had no cure, no vaccination, no way to protect people. It was very frightening, very frightening because um, we talked about what had happened to the previous patients. We talk about treatment. Are there any defined treatment for this? And he said no. And the the antibiotic he started me on, it was just basic antibiotic that we normally just give to regular patients with a bad cold or pneumonia. So it wasn't like, a, you know, anything different, although the disease was different. And you also knew that there were fatalities. Definitely. And then I, you know, I didn't know what to do because I couldn't, I didn't want to tell my husband because it was very frightening for him. I called my pastor at church and we, you know, they consoled me and I started making a will because I thought, okay, so this is not looking good. Sylvia worried about her family, her husband and daughter, and thankfully they were not infected. But SARS was spreading fast, and she, along with several other nurses who had been diagnosed, were taken to West Park Healthcare Center in Toronto. West Park is a rehabilitation center that has a unit completely dedicated to respiratory issues. It was very difficult. Um, we were 
in a hospital that was not prepared to deal with with us for um, medical complications because this West Park is a rehab, uh, a long-term care hospital. I'm not sure why we were sent there, but they had some vacant wings there and they do ventilation for chronic patients who are ventilated. And I think that might have been the deciding factor that we go there. But um, the doctors were just regular doctors. They were not any major specialists in that area. There were a lot of complications that they were not able to deal with. The SARS epidemic revealed huge gaps in Ontario's healthcare system. Doris Grinspun with the Registered Nurses Association of Ontario remembers the fear and stress at the time. The general feeling was a sense of chaos, quite frankly. Was a sense of a quite disorganized system that lacked clear directions of what to do during a health emergency of this magnitude, something that was unknown, uh, something that people didn't expect, lack of communication of what public health units in general uh, thought needed to be done or government. Uh, we received on daily basis, not dozens, but way more than dozens of communications at the beginning, mainly from nurses, uh, from nursing faculty that didn't know if to leave the students um, in their clinical placements. Then we started to receive calls also uh, from other professions and even more sadly from the public, from patients, including patients from their own rooms in the healthcare organizations. Doris says the lack of communication caused issues around planning and precautions that would help protect healthcare workers at the time. Worker safety wasn't being insured, and she says that many frontline workers weren't aware that a highly contagious disease was making rounds in hospitals. We have a duty to protect the public and to protect healthcare providers. You can imagine that if healthcare providers are, are to be there to protect the public in times of epidemics, whether it is in home care, whether it's in street care, whether it's in hospital care, long-term care, etc., right? That we also need to protect. We have a duty to protect the public, the health professionals, right? So to prepare them for this type of emergency so that they feel protected, so that they can in turn give it all to protect the public. As healthcare workers around the world struggled to stop the spread of the disease, the WHO moved forward with travel warnings. They advised that all non-essential travel be stopped to parts of China, Vietnam, Singapore, Mongolia, and the Philippines. Also on that list, Toronto. It was the only city in North America with a travel advisory, and at the time, it enraged then-Mayor Mel Lastman. Where did this group come from? Who did they see? Who did they talk to? Did they go to our hospitals? Did they go to our to, to our clinic? I want them here tomorrow. I want them to investigate Toronto tomorrow. 
I think they're doing this city and this country a disservice. They don't know what they're talking about. I don't know who this group is. I've never heard of them before. It's not the disease that's doing the damage. It's the, it's the public perception of, about SARS. In 2003, much like today, isolation was the only way to stop others from getting infected. And it would take months to control the spread of the virus in Toronto. By early May 2003, it seemed like things were finally getting back to normal. The WHO even removed the city from its list of affected areas. Ottawa is contributing to a PR campaign to try to rehabilitate Toronto's international image. But the hospitality industry says the repair job will be neither easy nor quick. But just as precautions were relaxed, it happened. Another outbreak, but this time at North York General Hospital. It started with a 96-year-old patient who was originally brought to hospital with a fractured pelvis. And even though it appeared he hadn't been exposed to a patient or healthcare worker with SARS, he began showing symptoms. This man would be the first patient of Toronto's second wave of SARS. The virus undoubtedly had a grip on the city once again. But for Doris Grinspun, SARS had never really left. The problem was that between the so-called phase one and phase two, there was a lack either of understanding or political will to actually recognize that there was no such a thing as phase one, phase two. It never had gone away, really. Could we have really prevented in the so-called second phase? Could we have had less people losing their lives? Uh, My hunch is that we could. We never will know that. 44 people died in Canada from SARS. Three of them were healthcare workers. Globally, it's estimated that over 800 people died. There were over 8,400 infections worldwide. When summer came, Toronto was slowly recovering from its second wave of SARS. And in July, a huge benefit rock concert was put on at Downsview Park in Toronto. Hey, Toronto, thanks for inviting us here. You know what? We wouldn't have missed it for the world. How you doing? It's estimated that around 450,000 people showed up, and there were huge headliners like the Rolling Stones, ACDC, and Justin Timberlake. It was the biggest rock concert in Canadian history. And according to some estimates, it was the biggest single-day concert to ever take place in North America. And it helped put Toronto back on the map. Okay, I need to jump in here for a moment. After this massive concert, I don't know about you, but it felt like SARS just went away. And I still had questions. Did we ever find out exactly where SARS came from? And how did it all start? I asked Dr. McGear. To the best of our knowledge, the coronavirus from which SARS evolved is a virus that infects bats and also accidentally infects other mammals, including occasionally humans. In fact, in 2017, scientists who spent years researching the virus's origin thought they found the source of SARS in a remote cave in southern China. 
That cave housed horseshoe bats, and they found 15 strains of the SARS virus there. Dr. McGeer said the virus made the jump from animal to humans in 2002. The ability to evolve this rapidly and dramatically and change is a known characteristic of coronaviruses. So it causes respiratory illness, but does not cause generally severe disease in humans. In the fall of 2002, that virus in wild animal markets in Guangzhou um, started down an evolutionary pathway that rapidly ended, so over a period of months, ended with the SARS coronavirus, which is a fully humanized, transmissible from human to human virus. So how did this happen? Well, it turns out that question, even all these years later, is a bit harder to answer. Knowledgeable people before SARS had predicted that we were likely to see new coronaviruses evolving because of the nature of coronaviruses and and the fact that they can change easily and quickly. We still don't understand why it would do that particularly. And at this point, we don't know where exactly COVID-19 originated from. I mean, it took us over a decade to find out the likely source of SARS. So it will probably be some time before scientists are able to find out that same information for COVID-19. But there was another question that I just couldn't stop thinking about. What happened to SARS? Was there a vaccine? I mean, how did it just disappear? Well, there's no, you don't find cures, <laughs> you don't find cures right away. You know, that this is, uh, um, it takes a long time to, we still don't have um, uh, a cure for SARS. We don't have effective treatments for many viruses. Um, that's, it, it just takes a long time to um, develop and, and identify um, treatments for infections. It was prompt identification and isolation of sick people that was most important. That's basically what helped eradicate this. Yep. Yep. So there it is. Dr. McGeer says there is no cure, but SARS was eventually eradicated. For months, we watched COVID-19 tighten its grip on the world. I wondered, how did we get here? And also... How was it that SARS was able to be eradicated, but with COVID-19, that just seems next to impossible? Dr. McGeer says it's because of how the disease spreads. The transmission of these infections um, is not the same at all. So SARS-CoV-1 has a risk of transmission that is really distinctive, shared by very few other viruses or bacteria, which is that when people were early in their illness with SARS-CoV-1, they were not very infectious to other people. The the concentration of virus increased in the airway as you got sicker. So you end up with transmission when people are at their most ill or just before they're dying. That's a characteristic shared by smallpox an Ebola virus and a small number of other viruses, but it's, it's really unusual. SARS-CoV-2 
much more like many other viruses, which is that you're actually most infectious before you get symptoms. So if you think about it, SARS-CoV-1 did not transmit in the community essentially at all. People were not infectious until they got into the hospital and they were really sick. So it was when you were in the ICU that there was most risk of transmission. Um, and so that, that transmission risk obviously was to healthcare workers because that's who's in the hospital with you, right? Um, SARS-CoV-2, on the other hand, um, is transmitted in the community by people who are not sick or not very sick or not sick yet. Uh, and so it, it, its risk in hospitals is not that great. By the time you get to the hospital with SARS-CoV-2, you're five or six days into illness, you're probably not very infectious at all. So that if we've had transmission in hospitals with SARS-CoV-2, it's been from healthcare workers who are before the onset of symptoms, right? So they come in, they feel perfectly well, but they are nonetheless infectious, uh, or patients to whom the same thing happens. So somebody who coincidentally is in the hospital for some other reason, but has been exposed to SARS-CoV-2 and, uh, and is shedding it and is infectious before they get sick from it. Um, so really different in terms of how and when they're transmitted. And that, of course, makes a big difference to, to how the outbreaks play out. In SARS-CoV-1, the outbreaks were in hospitals. We, once we recognized the disease and what was going on, we knew how to stop it. And so we, we eradicated SARS-CoV-1, right? That virus is gone and has not been back for 17 years now. Um, SARS-CoV-2, on the other hand, we have, we, we can, we can reduce transmission, but we can't stop transmission. And so um, it will, it, it's a pandemic and it's going to keep going until we get a vaccine. Before 2003, the idea of an epidemic like SARS was something people only saw in movies. Think Outbreak, which came out in 1995. But when the real thing happened, it caught everyone by surprise. If you had told people before SARS that a new coronavirus that was transmissible from person to person, predominantly in hospitals, was going to appear and was going to cause outbreaks in how many countries, can't remember the number anymore, um, over a four-week period, you would have been lost out of the room, okay? People would, people would not have taken that scenario seriously. But there's still this question at the back of my mind. We know that SARS and COVID-19 are both coronaviruses. I mean, they're from the same family in a sense. But how could they spread so differently? SARS-CoV-1 caused a pneumonia. There were very few people who were not symptomatic with SARS-CoV-1. So if you got infected with it, you got sick, not necessarily very sick, but essentially everybody got sick. Um, and it caused a, a pneumonia that was relatively typical on the scale of pneumonias, okay? SARS-CoV-2, on the other hand, um, a lot of people who get infected with SARS-CoV-2, maybe half or a little bit more, either don't have symptoms or have very, very minor symptoms, right? So already a huge difference. Another big difference that Dr. McGear explained, and this might be hard to believe because of the immense impact COVID-19 has had around the world, but she says the case fatality rate with SARS was much higher than it is with COVID-19. 
Most people who get COVID-19 um, get relatively mild disease and recover. We're still arguing, as you know, about what the case fatality rate for COVID-19 is because of that issue of people get minimal symptoms or no symptoms. It's probably somewhere between 0.2% and 0.7 or 0.8%. The case fatality with SARS-CoV-1 was a little above 10%. So that's a, that's a big difference. But as you've seen, right, you don't have to have a high case fatality rate to be a catastrophic pandemic um, if you spread easily enough. When I spoke with Dr. McGeer, she said something that really stuck with me. She said the SARS epidemic was, at its core, a hospital problem. And part of the reason why we haven't seen massive COVID-19 outbreaks in hospital settings is because there's a distinct difference between how SARS and COVID-19 spreads. But another reason? Well, in a lot of ways, 17 years ago, hospitals and healthcare workers hadn't been faced with something like this before. And in some ways, they weren't prepared for what was to come. It's one of the main reasons why Dr. McGeer says it's absolutely necessary that governments continue to fund public health. First of all, we need to fund our public health departments and our infection prevention departments. You know, there's public health sometimes. People seem not very useful, but they are, in fact, critically useful and badly underfunded. Um, And SARS is another illustration of why we need them so badly. Um, and and why we should keep um, be sure that we have strong public health and infection prevention programs. Um, and then secondly, it's also a, a measure of why having understanding of science and funding scientific research is so important. We were able to stop this outbreak because. We had, we, we were, if this outbreak had been five years earlier, we'd have been in deep trouble, okay? Would have been so much harder, okay? I know this outbreak felt much bigger than it should have been. Uh, it, we would have liked it to be smaller, but it was much easier to control because we had a bunch of techniques um, for identifying viruses and translating that into diagnostic tests for people um, that allowed us to identify people and be more efficient in, in controlling this virus. This sounds good, but let's face it, we're in the middle of a pandemic right now. And what I really wanted to know was what tangible changes came out of SARS that are being applied now. Well, Following the SARS epidemic, Ontario's government assembled an independent commission. It was led by Justice Archie Campbell of the Ontario Superior Court of Justice. And the purpose of the commission was to look at how the virus made its way to Canada and how it spread. It covers a whole host of recommendations. One of the main points is the idea of the precautionary principle— which means take the highest level of precaution to reduce potential risk, even if there isn't scientific proof to support the precautions. During SARS, there was a debate over how the virus was transmitted. Was it through airborne particles or large droplets? The SARS Commission report said it didn't matter who was right or wrong. What matters most is that precautions are taken to make sure workers are safe. 
the media, the public, nurses, doctors, government, is to always remember the precautionary principle. When in doubt, provide health professionals with more protection than less so they can protect the public and go to work to what they know best, which is to provide good care. After SARS, there was a hospital designed in Ontario with the epidemic in mind. Humber River Hospital has over 80 airborne pressure rooms. They're basically these negative pressure rooms that allow for airflow, but the air can't escape in case there's an airborne virus. So did SARS, in fact, help people in Ontario and Canada for what was to come? I brought that question to Dr. McGeer. So I think you know, whenever whenever you have an outbreak of infection, you learn things and make improvements. Uh, there's no question that um, we made a lot of changes related to infection prevention and control, how we staff it, the expertise in it. We started Public Health Ontario, which has been really useful for many years, not just for COVID, but for uh, other issues. So there were, there were lots of changes surrounding infection prevention in hospitals that occurred uh, because of SARS, which put us unquestionably in a better position um, with the COVID-19 pandemic. But it hasn't been a perfect response. And part of the reason could be because we continue to learn new things about COVID-19. And really, we should remember one thing when it comes to comparing these two illnesses. Honestly, from an infectious disease point of view, beyond their genetic relatedness and the similarity of the names um, and the fact that they both cause lung disease, uh, there's not that much that's the same, really. Sylvia was one of the patients that managed to fight off the illness. And although she was deemed cured, she still had a long road ahead of her. I came home and uh, still quite ill. And uh, I started having all kinds of um, joint problems and breathing problems. And I've had to be going to the doctors, going to, to physiotherapy. I went into physio. And I was, you know, I, I couldn't figure out what was wrong with me, my joints, why, why I had no energy, why I was always very tired. Sylvia went through rehabilitation, but she never fully recovered. In fact, to this day, she still experiences sensations like numbness and burning because of nerve damage that she believes are related to her SARS diagnosis. I have neuropathy in my in my feet bilaterally and I have um breathing problems some breathing problems my my um breathing isn't that great and after SARS many nurses in Ontario didn't go back to work after the outbreak something that is true for Sylvia Gordon I always continued on hoping that someday someday I would return and by the time that someday really I don't think that someday ever, ever came. Every one of us suffered from PTSD. I can't, I can't think of any of my colleagues who have not gone through it. Some are not even aware of it. It's very difficult because um, nursing was my identity, was who I, who, who, who I, who I am. And then when you have to give that up, you lose a very big part of who you are. Sylvia says watching the COVID-19 pandemic sweep across the globe has been difficult to watch. 
When I asked her if she thought SARS prepared us for COVID-19, she said more could have been done. And there were a lot of mistakes, especially around long-term care. I thought with SARS, we would have been even more um, prepared, but we were not. We we were probably more prepared than some other countries, but um, not to the degree that I thought we would have, considering that SARS resided here, being the epicenter, aside from, from, um, from China. COVID-19 is a global health crisis like no other. And as we continue to battle this virus, we are learning more and more each day. We are learning about the importance of education, transparency, and the importance of public health. We are learning to care for each other. We wear masks, take space, and stay at home if we're sick. Some of these lessons were learned during the SARS epidemic. And we will learn new ones from COVID-19 that will hopefully better prepare us for the future. Thank you for joining me this week. Whatever Happened To is written and produced by me, Erica Vela, with producer Dila Velezquez. Our audio producer is Rob Johnson. A special thanks to Chris Bassett, the National Director of Content and Editorial Standards for Global News. If you like this podcast, please tell a friend about the show and help me share these stories by rating and reviewing it on Apple Podcasts or wherever you listen. We are always looking for new stories, so if there's a new story you want us to revisit, you can reach me on Twitter at Erica Vella or email me at erica.vella at globalnews.ca. Thanks for listening. Hi, it's Shauna, and I might be a bad parent because my kids think french fries are vegetables. Hey, it's Ryan, and I might be a bad parent because I went out for wings when my wife was in the hospital after giving birth. Johnny here. I might be a bad parent because in my house, the tooth fairy gives pocket change. But we're not alone. Len emailed us and said his six-year-old daughter's Tarzan moment going from love seat to lazy boy by curtains made him more proud than any dance (laughs) recital. And Andy left his two-year-old at the rink. All right, guys, I'm sure we're not alone, like Andy's kid. For stories and confessions like this, make sure you check out our podcast. It's called Bad Parents, and it's available wherever you get your podcasts. I left a glove at the rink.